crunching data. That's the key to really understanding how governments work. Digging out unique narratives, then telling the story. And putting a voice to all that data? Well, that's the job of the monthly with Senator Pamela Wallen. Welcome to the monthly. I'm Pamela Wallen, your moderator for this session on rebuilding the Canadian economy and a look at who is influencing the big political decisions and economic ones. A little later, we'll explore those questions with the co-authors of one of the most insightful political books of the decade, The Big Shift, How Central Canadian Elites Define the Politics of a Nation. But first, to set the stage for our discussion, an assessment of the cost of the rebuild or the reset post-COVID. The Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux, joins us now. Welcome, Mr. Giroux. I looked at your report with great interest, and you seem to, if I'm interpreting this correctly, you seem to be saying there's an awful lot of activity in the budget, spending and promises of spending, but there's not much focus specifically on economic growth and productivity, trying to get at that really core question. That's a very fair assessment of uh, the report that we released recently on the economic and fiscal impacts of the budget 2021. Um, the budget included vast amounts of spending and including the over $330 billion in COVID-related support measures that has been announced since the beginning of the pandemic. So in addition to all this spending, the, the budget also included over $131 billion in incremental spending. And the government is claiming that this will generate a significantly additional, significant additional economic activity and create hundreds of thousands of jobs. Uh, we were not that certain about these numbers, so we decided to look in more details at these numbers yeah. ourselves. And what we found out is that once you factor in the likely monetary policy response, that is the reaction of the Bank of Canada to what is likely to be rising pressures on inflation, so we expect the Bank of Canada to be forced to increase its uh, base interest rates by 50 basis points in 2022 in the last part of 2022. So we expect that to dampen economic growth somewhat. Right. And that means the measures in the budget will uh, result in an increase in GDP of 0.6% uh, in 2021 and 0.3% in 2022 and virtually no net new impact after that, uh, resulting in the creation of about 80 to 90,000 additional jobs, which, which sounds impressive, a, but it's 0.4% yeah. increase in employment. Looking at those numbers, and that was my reaction too, that's a very small uh, movement on the Richter scale there. Uh, and with inflation, as you say, probably going higher, um, and we're watching the, the cost of goods go up. So what does this actually mean for the impact on uh, on the comeback on the, you know, we hear a lot about this uh, pent up demand theory that somehow magically this is all going to be unleashed on July 1 or August 1 or September 1. It doesn't think, seem that that will happen with these other uh, factors coming into play, higher interest rates, for example. 
Well, there's already pent up demand, as you mentioned, and notably because people have been restrained in what they can mm -hmm. do, where they can go, what they can buy in terms of services mostly. So that's why there's expectations of significant growth in this current year, uh, between five and 6%, depending who you talk to. And that's a significant rebound compared to the contraction of 5.4% in 2020. So, uh, and that comes from pent-up demand, as you mentioned, also mm -hmm. comes from the uh, increase in oil prices, which is a significant contributor in the Canadian context. And it, it also comes from the impact of the U.S. stimulus measures. There's uh, two big stimulus uh, um, measures that were announced by the Biden administration. Right. And given the very tight integration of U.S. and Canadian economies, when the U.S. is spending massively as it is doing right now, that has ripple effects on the Canadian economy. So all, all these factors contribute to a rebound in the Canadian economy. When the government adds to that, the Canadian government adds to that, there's a risk that uh, it will, um, it will um, stoke inflation fears. Yeah. And that's why the Bank of Canada is expected to put, uh, put uh, increases in its interest rates into play later in 2022. So all in all, go, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, I mean, when we see the government borrowing or the printing of money at the Bank of Canada uh, of $5 billion a week, I think down to uh, about three now, but they're projecting that into the future. So this kind of stimulus, whether needed or not, is going to continue. Um, it's very likely to continue what we saw in the budget. Um, comparing our post and pre-budget outlooks, we see that deficits are uh, expected to be some $117 billion higher than before the budget. So we looked at pre and post budget fiscal outlooks in our office, and the budget uh, has an additional $131 billion in spending, resulting in some $117 billion in deficits. So economic activity in and of itself will not um, reduce significantly the, uh, the deficit. So it won't generate uh, significantly higher government revenues. So the deficit will be higher than it would otherwise have been. And that is um, not taking into account the fact that beyond 2025, which is the end of our forecast horizon, uh, we expect the government to have introduced in this budget some 16 to $17 billion in new permanent spending. So it's not clear because the government's own fiscal horizon in the budget does not extend beyond fiscal right. year 2025-26. But based on that last year, it seems that about $16 billion is permanent new spending. And and we're not going to be balancing the books anytime soon. Let's just obviously make that clear. No, no. Um, can you just, as we wrap up this part of the discussion, uh, because we're, we're seeing, starting to see some of the analysis of this, that this budget is really much more about social and political objectives, redistributing income, a bigger, more activist government, uh, drivers for consumer spending than it is about innovation or productivity, just that point where we started. Uh, are, are you seeing that as a, um, a pretty dramatic shift and, and perhaps a permanent one under this government? 
Well, when the government tabled its fall economic statement and signaled its intention to introduce 70 to $100 billion in economic stimulus to return labor markets, notably to pre-pandemic levels, uh, we warned the government that it would be too much and too late because the economy would pick up naturally because of that pent-up demand that we talked about. Uh, but still, the government ignored these calls and that of other economists, think tanks, and so on, and still introduced economic stimulus or what it calls economic stimulus, despite the fact that the labor market in aggregate is very likely to return to its pre-pandemic level by the end of this year or the, the end of March 2022. Uh, so the government presented this economic stimulus as economic stimulus, but what it probably wants to do, in fact, is make structural changes to the economy. And that is is fine if that's what they want to do. My, my reaction to that is don't present that as economic stimulus. Present it for what it is, a change, a structural change that the government wants to make in the economy. And as a budget office, that's fine with me. It's policy choices, yeah. but don't present that as economic stimulus. And of course, it would have nothing to do with the fact that this is likely an election year. So I won't get you to comment on that. I don't know what you're talking about, Senator. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Yves Giroux, for just uh, laying that out for us and giving us some context for where we head now. Uh, Yves Giroux, the parliamentary budget officer, the, the person in charge of taking a look at those fiscal documents and giving us some assessment. Now, as promised, we have also invited uh, Daryl Bricker, and John Ibbotson to join us to take a look at uh, the context in which these changes are occurring. John Ibbotson, of course, a Canadian journalist, uh, more than 30 years. We always age ourselves when we say that thing. Uh, <laughs> also the author of several books, uh, books along with Daryl Bricker, who is the CEO of Public Affairs at Ipsos Market Research. Uh, and they seem to be a team here, although this morning we had a hard time getting them together. But here they are on the screen. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Thanks for having us on. Good. We can hear you now. So you heard Mr. Uh, Giroux's comments that uh, this was a, an economic document and more of a changing of the government's approach to how it plays in the economy, what its role is. How do you see this? Is it a document, and, and John, I know you cover this on a daily basis, is it a budget that is really about redistributing income, a bigger and more activist government? Yes, well, as you pointed out in your previous conversation, this is an election year, and yeah. the Liberal <laughs> budget is a classic uh, election budget. It seeks to define areas in which um, it can A, stimulate the economy, and B, redistribute funds uh, in the direction of those who it thinks needs it most and who might be most predisposed to reward it um, during the election uh, as a consequence. By the way, by that measure, it's a success. The Liberals mm -hmm. are uh, well ahead in the polls. Uh, the Conservatives are lagging either moderately behind or badly behind, depending on which poll you look at on which particular day. The question, if an election were held tomorrow, is will the, will the Liberals win a majority or will they win a minority? So um, combined with the, uh, the, the government's response to the pandemic and Canadians' desire not to change horses in midstream, I'm running out of cliches to stream together here. <laughs> 
but the, the the fact of the matter is, yes, it's a redistributive budget, it's a stimulative budget, um, it's an election budget, and that to that extent, it appears to be a successful budget. So, Daryl, I want you to jump in here because we're getting really mixed messages from the public, and it's your job to pull them and ask them and assess what they've really said. Of course, people wanted help throughout the pandemic, and they needed help throughout the pandemic. Um, we're not sure that it was targeted appropriately, but that's a separate question. Um, on the other hand, the polls are also showing that COVID and the politics around them have really eroded trust in public institutions, including governments. So how do you make, uh, how do you assess that? Well, in terms of uh, trust in public institutions, it's actually gone up during the course of, uh, of COVID as people have turned to government. Uh, for solutions, uh, both in terms of managing the pandemic specifically, but also managing the economic fallout from the pandemic. But what I would uh, challenge on, on, on this point is the correlation between what the government is doing and what the level of public support is for what the government is doing. Uh, right now, I think that that correlation at best would be described as spurious. I don't think awareness is very high of what the government is proposing, the types of changes that they're proposing economically. Really what uh, we're seeing is uh, very much what John said, uh, a, a trepidation with the idea of they've gone through so much change over the yeah. space of the last year and a half. The idea of changing one more thing and electing another government is a bit far. But um, I would say that uh, uh, on the idea of government becoming much more interventionist in the economy, the jury's out in terms of what the public thinks about that right now. Uh, I know, for example, when we go out and we ask people whether or not they think government should be paying attention to deficits, that those numbers haven't come down. Uh, in fact, what we're seeing right now is people's belief that the situation that we're in right now is very specific and relates particularly to this pandemic. It doesn't relate to a new approach to the government uh, for government intervention in society for, from this point on. In other words, they're, they're interpreting an emergency situation as a general change in, in views about the role of government and the size of deficits and things of that nature. I can tell you fundamentally that those things haven't changed. What okay, has so changed is the circumstances that we're in right now. That, that kind of leads me to this question because it's sort of, as you say, people haven't really paid attention. They've looked at all these numbers as a, an emergency reaction to things. But when you start looking at debt of 1.4 trillion dollars that the government is borrowing three to five billion dollars uh, uh, a month uh, or a week in some cases um, these are huge numbers is it just too much for people to grasp or is or is it just they haven't been paying attention to whether or not this signals behavior in the future they think it's just contemporary behavior so from a public opinion perspective, these are all abstractions. So the, uh, all of it is promises about what's going to be better in the future as a result of doing this that people haven't realized or, or seen and you know, not, don't necessarily count on government to actually be able to deliver. That's the one thing. The second thing is all of this borrowing and all of this spending hasn't really had an impact other than to support people during the course of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So if you're a person who's been in your job you've been working from home, you've been getting paid. It's not like your tax bill has gone up astronomically in order to support this, or you've, there's been any cost that's been, uh, that been borne by you uh, in order to deal with this expansion of, of public spending. So you can have an abstract conversation about it. It's, 
it's it's not very real and people really aren't that engaged in uh, in what the potential longer term uh, effects of this are, are, are going to be. Mm-hmm. So I think that we're still very early days on this. Um, I think that there's a lot of false signals. I think that there's a lot of spurious spuriousness in terms of uh, correlations that people are seeing between what the government is doing and its level of support. Uh, I think the jury's still out. Okay, John, you're you're nodding on that one. Is that your sense that uh, as long as the prime minister comes out every day and says, "I have your back, we're with you, uh, we're going to reimagine the country," and this is that it's just it's kind of words, and they're just um, it's placating people because they just want to get through this and get the needle in their arm and and get on with life. Yeah, I think there are two things happening. So first of all, as uh, as long as we are in this state of crisis and the government is saying the way in which we respond to this crisis, the worst that Canada, the worst that the world has faced since the Second World War is to massively support people uh, through income supports. Um, as long as the, as the general consensus is that coming out of this crisis, we will need strong government direction. Uh, to manage the economy. As long as those things are underway, then the Liberals uh, can remain confident that in the short term, they uh, are are going to be popular and are going to win the next election. Secondly, as long as the Americans agree, Mm -hmm. uh, the Liberals are in good shape. The Biden administration is proposing stimulus packages, uh, infrastructures, uh, bills, uh, economic support bills, that they don't need either (laughs) as vast as anything that canada is proposing so it's very much a me too thing we're we're in lockstep with the americans and uh, and again uh canadians will probably nod and say well if the americans are doing it we should do it too third no one remembers the name benson he was i believe and i stand to be corrected here but he was the finance minister under pierre trudeau um, who initiated the first deficit in quite a number of years. It was in the very early 1970s. And the theory was that the, the country was um, going through, it, it, the word for it eventually was stagflation, a period of, of, of inflation followed by uh, economic downturn, and that we needed to stimulate the economy in order to get past it. It took 25 years before an endless run of deficits brought us yeah. to the point where Paul Martin, uh, the finance minister, felt that, um, that emergency measures were needed to restore uh, confidence in the finances and to bring the budget back into balance. You, if you are under 40, even early 40s, you don't remember any of that. You don't remember the tremendous pain that we went through, the, the incredible slashing of budgets, the, the cuts to healthcare, the cuts to education, the cuts to infrastructure that were needed to bring the budget back into balance. And if that's the case, you probably don't care about this very much. What's a deficit? Yeah. And in fact, you probably aren't going to care for another 10 or 15 or even 20 years. So the, the liberals are, are politically on sound, uh, solid ground here. Uh, the emergency suggests these deficits are needed. The Americans are uh, in lockstep with the Canadians. And it could be another 20 years before we have to actually face the consequences. We heard some, and I'd, I'd like to hear you uh, on this, Daryl. We heard from uh, Mark Carney, who, of course, was the governor of the bank and, and is coming back and is in the political spotlight again, whether or not he's uh, going to 
take up a political career directly. So he was saying in response to a discussion about this budget that really this was just the first step. You would be able to see some signs here of where the government was going, that in fact they do fully intend to become uh, very interventionist and, and very activist. So that that, you know, that, that signaling is there. Um, you're saying right now Canadians are not uh, particularly paying attention to that. But where do we stand as a country? Do we want more and bigger government in our life? Can, can we remember what it was like pre-pandemic when we had perhaps different views about it? Well, I'm sure that's how Ottawa sees things. I mean, you know, that's <laughs> more expansion of government is always seen as a good thing in Ottawa. Um, but uh, the public's view of Ottawa, um, first of all, to just add some more context to what John was talking about, the country that we have today is not the country of the 1970s. It's changed right. dramatically. We're a much more Western country than we were before. Western views matter much more in terms of political outcomes. We're a much older country than we were before. Um, our, 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 our population has aged a lot. Uh, so those activist governments of the 1970s, well, maybe there actually are a lot more people who've lived through that than we might assume if the population structure remained constant over time, because uh, we know that the median age of a Canadian today is 41. So I'm, I'm not so prepared to say that people don't have some memories about, about what happened. Uh, in, view, in terms of this government, I think the, the public perception of them right now is they talk a lot and they don't do a lot. Um, so... Um, Maybe you can interpret that as, okay, people interpreting this as, uh, you know, a bit more hot air coming out of Ottawa, but the actual effect is not going to be anything. Or they might actually be worried as a result of a series of commitments being made that are going to cost a lot of money and not really achieve anything. So I'm not prepared to say at this point that this government is in as uh, um, a secure a position, I think, as, as, as uh, I think the, the consensus is right now. I think campaigns matter. Uh, I think that there's some evidence that the parties are coming a little bit closer together over time. I think that for, to a large extent, partisanship has been suspended. The opposition parties aren't able to effectively do what they're supposed to do to government Correct. Uh, in, yep. in the current environment. So I think there's a lot to happen through all of this um, over the next little while. And I was just on a phone call this morning with our team in Chile, and uh -huh. uh, they've just gone through a big constitutional uh, process they've elected a new government the first progressive government parliamentary progressive government they've they've ever elected that nobody anticipated <laughs> so yeah. one of one of the things that i think is really important here is we're in a very precarious kind of situation and that public opinion is fragile even though it looks solid i think it's actually quite fragile and i think that there's a lot of things that are going to happen between now and and the election and through the course of the election that could influence things one way or the other i would it, it would be foolish to see an, a scenario at the moment in which the conservatives win a majority government right. or you know win a win a substantial minority or whatever they've got a, an awful long way to go here but i'm uh, i've lived through enough of this over the last while to understand that I don't understand. And, and what's <laughs> happening in terms of public opinion at the moment, I think that there's a lot of false positives that people are pulling out of that to align with their view of looking at the world that I think we need to look more carefully at. So you seem to be saying that what John was talking about, that you know that this is very successful uh, politically for the, the Liberal Party, and that certainly is the take. Now you seem to be suggesting that John is just a member of that, you know, um, 
Laurentian elite, and he's well, going. He along. named them. He named them, Senator. <laughs> it's his term. So. <laughs> so, John, talk about that a little bit. The the people that are making decisions, and when you see that fishbowl, which is Ottawa, where they all talk to one another, and Mark Carney is is talking to Christian Friedland, and they're talking to Jerry Butts and the Prime Minister, and you know, from my vantage point sitting here in Saskatchewan, it doesn't much look like there's been a Western shift anywhere in terms of their response to what the needs are here. So again, um, uh, I think Daryl, I think rightly uh, calls it a false positive, the Ottawa bubble. Um, But there are a couple of things nonetheless that I think are true. Uh, One is that if an election were held tomorrow, the only question would be, is it a liberal majority or a liberal minority? campaigns matter and very much could happen in the course of a six or eight week campaign, not to mention what's going to go on through the course of the summer. Um, But there are a couple of other things that trend right now for the moment in the Liberals' favour. And one of them is that the Conservative coalition that Daryl and I talked about in our book, The Big Shift, um, has not come together. The, the, in the big shift, Daryl and I said that there is a natural governing conservative of coalition available to the party if, it ha- if it's smart enough to put that coalition together. And that coalition consists of the strong support that the conservatives have in the Prairie Provinces and in the interior of British Columbia and in rural Ontario. That gives them about yeah, a third of the electorate going into any given election not a bad place to be uh, on the opening day of an election campaign. But to get from there to government, there's one more group you need. And that group is the suburban immigrant middle-class voter in the 905, named after its area code, in the suburban riding surrounding the city of Toronto. Mirrored, by the way, in the suburban riding surrounding the city of Vancouver. If you want to win government, you must win those ridings. And right now, the Liberals are doing a much better job than the Conservatives of attracting voters in those ridings. They are the, the, they are the government of the pandemic, the government of economic stimulus, of, of wage supports, um, and all the other things that they have done that have reassured suburban immigrant voters in the 905 that Ottawa has their back. They're the government of climate change. Right now, uh, and for, for a number of years, suburban immigrant voters in the 905 do worry about global warming and want to see a government that is active in addressing that. Um, They uh, emphatically do not want to see a political party that is suspicious of immigrants, that is skeptical of immigration, that is intolerant of diversity. And sadly, um, there is a rump within the Conservative Party uh, that reflects those views and the leadership of the party has not done a very good job of suppressing it and convincing Canadians that that is not the true conservative coalition. That could change. Aaron O'Toole is an effective, competent uh, leader. He may very well be able between now and election day to assemble that coalition, the existing conservative base, plus the suburban immigrant voters in the 905 and in the lower mainland. If so, he will form a government. But unless, but right now, those voters are with the Liberals. And unless and until the Conservatives can find a way to pry them away, the Liberals will be favored in this or any other election to come. I guess uh, what I see, and 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 being here um, for much more, you know, much more regularly than when we're sitting in Ottawa and listening to the people that are here. Uh, farmers are, for example, amongst 
some of the the greenest people in Canada. I know I know uh, it, the the media establishment doesn't view that, but these people need to support the land and and engage in practices that allow them to continue. Um, the energy sector has been leading edge in terms of new technologies to take oil and gas out of the ground in a greener way. They get, Daryl, zero credit for that. And as this divide continues in terms of how the world is viewed there uh, in Ottawa and how it's viewed in other places, I'm hearing a whole lot more stuff, which is, okay, if Quebec can unilaterally declare itself a nation, maybe we will too. Oh, this is the, this is the old Laurentian elite, you know, favorite topic, right? So that's, yeah. uh, but the biggest problem I would say in the Conservative Party today and the variation between them and the Liberal Party is that the Liberals figured out that the only way that you can actually have influence in the world is if you govern. And that government means that you need to compromise and government means that you need to align with public values. The Conservatives have not figured out since Stephen Harper any other way to be than other than just angry. Yeah. And so they know what they're against. They not necessarily know what they're for. They don't necessarily know what they're, they, they would do in government. They can agree. And, you know, in particular, some of the more uh, uh, strident views that John was pointing to, and I think he's absolutely right about this, take fair-minded people who could vote liberal or conservative or, um, you know, may not vote at all or participate in the political process and say, I'm just embarrassed to align myself with a party that would yeah. tolerate what I'm seeing over there. So this is the problem that they have. They have to learn the discipline of power um, and the need to have power in order to have the effect that you're talking about. So if you're talking about farmers in the oil industry, well, that's great, but they just can't be angry at what Ottawa is doing. They have to align with public values, as John was saying, and you know, do a better job of communicating their commitment to the environment and showing people that they are committed to a, to a greener future because that's the, the global consensus and it's the Canadian consensus. Mm -hmm. But then they also have to turn around and say to people who are on the other side of some of these issues that are just, there's no way they're going to fly. I mean, they're just things that people paint signs over and protest over. They don't get get into to, to govern over. They're going to have to turn to them and say, look, you know, you're either part of a project that's going to be, uh, have a potential to form a, a government in this country or sit down and shut up and let us do it. But, and and but that's, th that's the conservative dilemma right now. This is kind of my point that people living in this part of the country for a variety of different reasons, I, I don't want to be too simplistic, but they are not identifying with either one of these parties and nobody has a message that says we are part of one uh, big Canadian project. That, that's just not there anymore. Well, you don't necessarily, what John and I wrote about in The Big Shift is something that I think Aaron O'Toole understands in his bones. And Stephen Harper certainly understood. Stephen Harper figured out how to execute it, and uh, and Erin um, uh, O'Toole has yet to figure out how to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, which is the idea that there's actually a new way to win. There's a way that you can satisfy those interests, but you can only do it if you align it with people who, on a number of issues, if you look at the Venn diagram, actually correlate. They overlap with a lot of the values of the people that you're just talking about. They happen to live in the suburbs. Uh, are, are the people living in the suburbs real big greenies and are there, you know, fully committed to climate change? Uh, well, there are some, but the ones that would consider voting for conservative, the conservatives, they're not, you know, highly motivated by this issue. Right. They just don't want to be embarrassed by a leadership that appears not to care about. It. Yeah, they so still have to drive to, to work, put, but yeah. Yeah, there are ways to put this coalition together 
But um, and Stephen Harper figured it out. Um, and uh, um, it's a new way to win a majority in this country. But uh, but Aaron O'Toole hasn't figured it out. And we're hearing so much from the people who are actually, it seems like, not really interested in being in government, not even really interested in being legislating or involved in legislation. All they want to do is protest on marginal issues. Yeah. They will be the people who defeat the Conservative Party next time around. And, and yeah. unless Aaron O'Toole can figure out how to put, put together that coalition by silencing that group of people, accommodating them to a certain extent, but 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 finding out a way to manage it properly, it's going to be very, very difficult. Because if I'm sitting on the Liberal Party, I know exactly what I'm going to do. The only definition of a Conservative Party I'm prepared to acknowledge is the one that they, they won't acknowledge. Yeah. John, you're, you're agreeing with that. So is there, um, I, I mean, essentially what you're saying is that the Liberals just need to sit back and, and let the Conservatives continue to not engage with voters or not connect with voters and and they're kind of set that's different than them having to present something other than we have your back uh to to win this to to have an endorsement for what they want to do whether or not people are paying attention to it or not yeah i think i think there's a lot of truth in that uh the conservatives and the new democrats um have something in common which is they would rather be right than in government. <laughs> um, and the liberals have a, only a single principle. They would rather be in government than anything else. Yes. So Brian Mulroney and Stephen Harper were very different leaders. And in fact, they led different parties. One was a progressive conservative and the other Correct. was Correct, yeah. But Brian Mulroney and Stephen Harper had this in common. They led their party at a time when they and their party really wanted to govern. Um, and they did things, do you remember uh, Brian Mulroney uh, whipping the caucus into shape over minority language rights in Manitoba uh -huh. in, uh -huh. in the early 1980s? And Stephen Harper disciplining his caucus into, um, you know, eliminating those bozo eruptions that did the party so much damage right. in the lead up uh, before the 2006 election campaign. There you had strong, effective leaders who convinced their party that what the conservatives really needed to do was imposed upon themselves the discipline required in order to govern. Right now, the conservatives don't have that discipline. Yeah. Right now, they go running off in every direction. And some of those directions involve limits on the right to abortion, which no one in the, in, in the suburban 905 um, or the lower mainland cares about. <clears throat> or Nobody's talking about it. <laughs> no, uh, gun rights. Five reporters. Uh, or, or limits to immigration. These are yeah. all poison pills. And the liberals yeah. do everything in their power to, to you know, shove those poison pills down the, down the conservatives' throat. If the conservatives want to refor reforge the, co the governing coalition, the coalition that consists of suburban urban uh, voters in Vancouver, outside Vancouver and Toronto, then it needs to impose upon itself the, the discipline, the will to win that uh, involves putting forward coherent center-right policies, policies that should be attractive, policies that say endless deficits are not the way to prosperity, policies that would that, that emphasize you know, a responsible reliance on the free market, while at the same time taking concrete steps to combat global warming, all things that Aaron O'Toole as leader is doing, um, but yeah. not as effectively as he might, simply because he isn't able to convince the Conservatives that it's more important right now to win than to be right. 
I, what I find very troubling about your insightful analysis, the both of you, because I agree and I think it's right, is that there's no indication here that anybody has to really, in order to win an election, stand up and say, this is what I believe in, in terms of the economic future of the country. I just was reading this morning some comments from um, Robert Aslan, who's a, a, a liberal advisor, has been in his... Um, in his past, works for the business community now, but saying, you know, we, we've kind of got to ditch all this incremental stuff. We've got to go big. We've got to do something on innovation. We've got to deal with productivity in our country. We've got to really decide who we are and what we're going to um, develop and present to the world. We're not just going to be hewers of wood and drawers of water. There's got to be something more. Like there are people on the edges talking about this kind of thing but you're both telling me that nobody needs to present some huge new economic vision. You might have some conversations around whether the deficit's too big or too small, or you know, whether we need the spending uh, to last through till November or next year, but nobody has an economic vision of the country that might bring us together. Daryl, your thoughts on that? Well, you know, the liberals are always perceiving that they're at a, uh, you know, a Bismarckian type moment or, uh, you know, uh, a, a New Deal FDR type moment or a beverage report yep. after the first or second world war type moment where they're, they're going to completely reform everything. Uh, and they believe that the public, that's where they are. The public is not there. What they've been through is not the type of fundamental disruption that requires them to completely rethink everything about government. Every new idea that every progressive has had over the last 20 years, now's the moment. The public's not there. They don't particularly trust government to, 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 to run the economy. They in particular don't trust this government to, to run the economy. Um, uh, as far as deficits and, uh, and debt are concerned, you don't spend two generations telling people they're bad things for them all of a sudden to turn on the other direction and say that they're good things. The public's not there. There's lots of fertile ground for somebody to take this government on that relates exactly to that. The question is, can this conservative party do that? And, and okay. to this point, we haven't seen it. On the other side, you've got um, the progressives represented by the NDP who uh, could point to the Liberal Party and say, which I think is a valid criticism, you guys are all talking no action. So you have yeah. wonderful worlds, you have wonderful rhetoric, but you actually get bored after you make the promise with actually delivering on anything and changing it because you're running off to the next shiny object. You're like a crow, yeah. right? And yeah. you don't actually deliver on anything. We're a government who's actually prepared to deliver on some of this yeah. progressive rhetoric in a meaningful way. If those yeah. two parties could figure out how to do that, then this government is going to be jeopardized. But I agree 100% with John. They're all, you know, sort of chasing their own behinds, chasing their own tails, trying to win the war on Twitter every day, trying to, you know, find some attention that they can get from the national media who's paying no attention to the opposition right now and uh, seem completely incapable of getting themselves ready to fight a meaningful election against the liberals. And, and that's where I think John is spot on. The liberals, yeah. the liberals see it. And, and, and I figured out, let, let me ask you, this is a bit of a diversion, but, but you've made the point, Daryl, about the media doesn't cover the opposition. They don't cover much of anything else in, in the midst of a pandemic. It's just pandemic wall to wall and uh, what the numbers are in this and that. Uh, is there more of a responsibility to actually be discussing these issues 
through the media. Um, not just the numbers are up, the numbers are down, who had a bad day, who had a good day in terms of the premiers, but to really uh, grapple with some of these larger issues and point out to the public what discussion is going on. Well, you know, it's interesting uh, when it comes to the big shift, you, it's a, it's a, I really like the book. I know some other people do too. <laughs> John always tells me the parts that I wrote are the parts that he likes. I always tell him the parts he wrote are the ones I like. He wrote the best media chapter I've I've ever read. So rather than directing the question to me, I'd rather no, no, that's it, John. You go, yeah. you go. Well, look, uh, yeah, the, there is. We all know um, a bubble uh, within the parliamentary press gallery within inside Ottawa uh, that tends to be um, uh, small p progressive, if that's the right word. Mm-hmm. Uh, that tends to be skeptical of the Conservative Party. Um, and, and, uh, and, and antagonistic towards it. That was especially true when Stephen Harper was prime minister. He, he took heat from uh, the parliamentary press gallery that uh, Justin Trudeau has not uh, taken. Um, and, and for example, Stephen Harper was seen as dictatorial, controlling, anti-democratic. The center uh, imposed its will on all and no one could say or do anything without um, the, the prime minister's office's blessing. Well, that's even more true under Justin Trudeau than it was under exactly. Stephen Harper. And, yep. and that's almost a universal consensus in Ottawa that, that the PMO under Trudeau is even more controlling and dictatorial than it was over Harper. And yet uh, they don't get um, as much grief over it uh, as, as Stephen Harper's conservatives uh, got. But let's not exaggerate that. Let's not um, push it in the direction of the conservatives aren't in power because the evil media uh, paints them uh-huh. up as being, um, you know, demons, uh, and it's and therefore not the conservatives' fault. This is, after all, at the end of the day, not just a question of whose policies are are right. It's not just a question of how you put together the most effective governing coalition. It's also a question of of, of leadership. Who can sell the brand? Um, the difference uh, uh, right now, uh, really over the last almost uh, over the last six or seven years, is that the Liberals have a leader who can sell the brand. Justin yeah. Trudeau is a very <laughs> effective politician. He is a very effective leader. I think Daryl, we said in Big Shift that I, we don't know what it is, but whatever it is, either you've got it or you don't. And uh-huh. Justin Trudeau's got it. He has it in spades. Uh, and um, uh, Stephen Harper had it too, but 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 by the end of his uh, well, he doesn't. He never had charisma, but he had <laughs> the ability to convince forty percent of Canadians that he was an effective, competent manager, and that's what people wanted for nigh on a decade. But Justin Trudeau was able to sell them something else. He was able to sell them that that he had a vision for the country that we could be bigger, we could be bolder, we could be brighter, we could be smarter, we could we, we could be more attractive, and, and that he could embody all of those things. And he has done a very good job of selling that. And yes. the, Andrew Shear did a very bad job of yeah. offering an alternative. Arrow Tool has not yet convinced people that he has something better to sell them. As long right. as the vote is about who do you want to run the store, Justin Trudeau is uh, a demonstrably an effective salesman uh, in answering the question and saying, I can run, I can make a Canada that you will be happy to live in and proud to live in. Um, just a, conservatives aren't one, as successful at doing that. Just one point, because in, in certainly my time in journalism and, and your time in journalism earlier, we had um, 
not the pressures, obviously, of delivering 24-7 through all the live platforms, et cetera. But there was also expertise. I mean, you sent your, your, your folks that knew the budget into the lockup and you had a, a labor specialist and you had, we have none of that anymore. Is it fair to say that there's uh, a degree of economic illiteracy um, in those that report and therefore they can't be um, explaining that or translating that to the public? Well, let me, uh, if I can, Daryl, uh, say the answer to that is yes and no. Uh, there has been a, a marked deterioration in the number of people uh, working in the Parliamentary Press Gallery, not in, in the quality of the work uh, that they do, but there are far fewer of them. Um, there's been a great hollowing out of newspapers uh, since the since the Great Recession of 2009, so that that great newspapers that were here in in the past, the Vancouver Sun, the Ottawa Citizen, the Montreal Gazette, the Calgary Herald, the Edmonton Journal, um, they have fewer journalists um, and less yeah. visibility, less presence on the hill, um, and that has an impact absolutely. But the Globe and Mail and the CBC, uh, nonetheless, are as fully staffed today as they were before. Yeah. Um, the Toronto Star uh, is making uh, a bit of a comeback as it seeks to rebuild uh, its, its Ottawa Bureau and, and its own brand. So I think it would be wrong to say that, that there just isn't a, a, a journalistic presence now um, in, in the way there was then. There has been a, a decline absolutely among the Metro dailies across the country in their representation yeah. on the Hill. But, but there are still big news organizations like the Globe, like the CBC, that are there and doing the job as well today as they did it in the past. Darren, just a final comment on that, just about, I guess, the level of economic literacy in this country. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. As, as the media has moved more to try and personalize its reporting and make its reporting more relevant to, uh, I guess, day-to-day -day people as they've struggled to find audience um, yeah. and uh, uh, you know, try to make things more local, more personal, all that kind of thing. Um, the, the, the level of diversity that they've actually been uh, putting on air or putting in print or doing whatever has narrowed. And, and you, you can see it uh, certainly in terms of the types of diversity that gets the most obvious type of presentation, which is in terms of the gender uh, balance, in terms of uh, racial diversity, uh, in, in terms of what they do, uh, in terms of you know, younger and older views, that, that kind right. of thing. But the truth is what's happened in terms of their perspective, it's, it's actually narrow. So when you go out and, and I just did a study, um, in fact, uh, for, for, uh, for major news organization, which we looked at um, what people meant by diversity. And yes, there's LGBTQ2 plus, issues yeah. yes there's you know racial composition issues but even bigger for some people is geographic diversity yeah. there's a real perception that all of the news comes out of ottawa and downtown toronto yeah. i guess in quebec it would come out of montreal or quebec city so there's a sense it's a very downtown perspective the other thing is in terms of, of um uh, uh, ideological perspective or the framework that you use to look at the world there's a sense that it is, it is also narrow that there isn't a lot of diversity in terms of the things that, that you hear. And the interesting thing is that as we've moved to this more of a personal type of way of looking and reporting, say, for example, like economic stories, it, it's, it's really the stories of a very Gen Z millennial kind yeah. of way of looking at the world, a very downtown way of looking at the world in which everything seems to be obsessed with the kinds of things that they're looking at. But again, remembering that the median Canadian's 41, 
Most of them live in the suburbs. Most of them don't live downtown. Most of them don't care that much about politics. That ability to reach out to those people, I think that's one of the things that the, the Ottawa Press Gallery, major the loss of uh, support for major dailies, that's one of the things that's really hurt. So yeah, maybe the staffing has widened, but in, in many ways it's actually become more narrow. Yeah, in terms of the coverage. The two of you, it's just, it's a its a great tag team you've got going here. So keep on writing your books and uh, we'll, we'll keep bringing you back. So Daryl Bricker, John Ibbotson, and of course earlier, Yves Giroux, the, the PBO Parliamentary Budget Officer was with us. I want to bring Greg in because sometimes he just wants to ask a quick question at the end of this before we wrap up. So Greg McDougall of Government Analytics, come on in. Thank you, Senator, and thanks, uh, guys, for the opportunity. And Eve, I see Eve is still with us, Senator. So if Eve could come on screen; it'd be great. If 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 it gets too complicated, well, on, on there my, he is. There he is. Here's, <laughs> the here's magic. a question to pick up on on the literacy issue, but also the I, I'm struck by the fact that Daryl mentioned um, lack of uh, lack of understanding or interest or like the size and change of things in the last twelve months economically. Is 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 dramatic, and uh -huh. and and John has said that you know it took 25 years to deal with what occurred in the 70s, and I think that's where we are now. And and here's a question for Eve, and then maybe the other, the uh, Daryl and John can comment. But is Eve in the next uh, 12, 24 months or so, or even three years, the interest rate's going to jump back to about two percent. I mean, that's what the governor is committed to doing. That's uh, on the book. It's clear that that's the target and direction. A 2% jump uh, on all the debt that everyone is holding, including the government, would be a dramatic change in how people see things. And would that, what in, my question to Eve is, what impact would that have perhaps in servicing the debt and so on? And then over to Daryl and John, just how, how would that shift? How would, would that shift people's interest in, in understanding and, and, and uh, participating in this larger issue around the ec economy and the economics and the, and the growth of the deficit and debt. So Eve, on the 2% issue. Well, that's a, an interesting question. Of course, rising interest rates will have impacts on government debt servicing costs. Um, the, the issue is not so much demanding or, or binding at the federal level because interest rates, even though they raise, they increase, it's starting from close to zero, 1.5% or 1%. So yeah, a 2% increase is a tripling almost of the interest rates, but from a very low base. So, and the government, the federal government is able to, to absorb that. Um, the issue I think will be at the provincial level for provinces that are already experiencing um, difficult financial circumstances. Think about mm -hmm. Newfoundland and Labrador, but also for those who have gone on and persons, individuals, households, and businesses that have taken on more debt to withstand the economic shock of the pandemic, um, assuming they, they took on some debt. Think about neighbors who bought houses at uh, very high prices. I can think of a few on my street. I would never have paid that amount for that house, but yet there are people yeah. taking on mortgages. So the bullet is going to, it's going to, the rubber is going to hit the road, sorry, when interest rates rise for some households, especially if they continue to rise beyond the 2% or 1.5% 
point in increase that we we see on the horizon. For example, if there's a financial crisis somewhere else in the world, that has repercussions in Canada. And that is a risk that the Bank of Canada has mentioned, that we have mentioned, and that many other commentators have mentioned. John, I know you made the point about uh, uh, lack of memory of, of the bad old days. I mean, nobody knows about 25% interest rates either. No, I remember in the in the early uh, 1980s when inflation and uh, interest rates were both in double digits. Um, but history tells us that as long as the provincial and federal governments have the fiscal capacity to run high deficits, the public will let them get away with it. Um, it wasn't until the early 1990s when the housing bubble in Toronto had collapsed and people found themselves uh, stranded with huge mortgages and homes that were a fraction of what they used to be worth. It wasn't until uh, the finance uh, department found that it was having trouble selling Canadian bonds uh, in the market. It wasn't until Canada had earned a global reputation as being an irresponsible, profligate government that couldn't control its finances that we began to take this thing seriously. And again, I feel really bad about it because we who lived through the tremendous austerity of the mid and late 90s, yeah. uh, as, as provincial and federal governments worked together to bring their books into balance, we remember how much pain that caused, how much, yeah. how much hurt it caused. Um, you could argue that people died because our, our healthcare system wasn't able to provide the kind of level of care that it needed while we struggled. Uh, you could argue that students got an inadequate education because of all the, the cuts that we made to education. It really, really hurt to get the books back into balance. And in fact, it hurt so much that for about the next 15 years, uh, taxpayers would string you up if you even mentioned the possibility of running a deficit. They didn't want to yeah. go anywhere near a deficit. I remember economists telling me that they wish governments would start running deficits just to get people used to the idea that sometimes a modest deficit <laughs> is necessary. But now, uh, but that's all gone. That's all forgotten. And we're yeah. back in those days where as long as you have the fiscal capacity to run the deficit, you can get away with it. And we all know how this will end. Final comment to you, Daryl. Yeah, this is when Ottawa stops mattering. Um, the deficits, that's doesn't have an impact on most people. Um, what really is the problem is when this gets executed by Bay Street and by Wall Street and, and people who are responsible for credit card debts and for mortgage rates. And when that starts to happen, politics all of a sudden becomes very, very personal. And the razor's edge that these guys are walking on uh, when it comes to interest rates is what my credit card bill is going to be next month. There's no faster market signal than when interest rates start to go up and my bills start to go up in a way that I didn't anticipate. And the problem that the government has in this circumstance is not the debt and the deficit. The problem that they have is the expenses going up among a segment of the electorate that they're absolutely counting on voting for them in the next federal election. And I don't know that the government is able to move quickly enough and able to be, to, to be able to keep up with what's going to be happening in terms of mortgage rates and what's going to be happening in terms of uh, credit card bills. And that middle-class family that bought into the neighborhood that Eve was talking about at a, at a much higher rate than they should have, probably having to gerrymander some sort of a down payment through some strange yeah. financing agreement, they're right in the crosshairs. And those are the people that the government is counting on voting for them. 
These are the people that they're targeting their childcare program to and you know, other things that they promise that are gonna be a longer term. But the immediate effect of interest rates going up by three times on their lives is really a problem. So elections sooner as opposed to later before the chickens come home to, to roost here. So thank you all again, Daryl Bricker uh, with Ipsos, uh, John Ibbotson, Globe and Mail, and Yves Giroux, the Parliamentary Budget Officer. Just a little uh, reminder, uh, on June 9th, that's a Wednesday, 11 a.m. to 12 noon Eastern, we are going to take a look at uh, the latest craze, modern monetary theory. Is it just a word for what we're witnessing right now, which is just spending. We have with us Stephanie Kelton. She's the author of The Deficit Myth and a former policy advisor to Bernie Sanders and is one of the uh, big promoters of this. So it should be very interesting. Um, my thanks to all of you again and all of you are, who participated and Greg McDougall and Stephen Saunders at uh, Government Analytics for making this all happen. See you again next time. And that's why Government Analytics takes the time to crunch the numbers, to dig and discover the real story, the data story. Thank you for joining us on The Monthly.